0: Hey everybody, we're back again for episode two of the Neural Audio Podcast. I'm here with Andrew Fife and Christian Steinmetz, uh, our co-hosts. And um, yeah, we're welcoming you back. Just want to give you a quick reminder at the start, uh, we're going to continue this discussion on our uh, audio programmer community on Discord. If you want to join up, uh, join us at theaudioprogrammer.com forward slash community. So Christian, you're in a different location today.
1: Yep. I'm back in London uh, now, continuing my PhD work uh, here at Queen Mary at University of London. So, yeah, I was spending the summer in Boston and good to be back in London, just in time for the rain <laughs> as usual.
0: That's great. We were talking a little bit before the podcast about uh, just what being in your final year of your PhD is like. And I was I was very curious to hear more about that. So can you tell us a little bit more about your day to day uh a day in the life of Christian as a <laughs> your PhD student
1: yeah um, it definitely has its ups and downs as far as you know the stress and, and as it is often the case you know you have a large periods of kind of you're just working along and going hard and deep into some problem uh, but then uh, there's always those like crunch time moments where you need to be ready to present things and get those results at some deadline and So actually for me recently, I just had what's called like my stage two progression, which is like the final kind of checkpoint before you submit your thesis or like start writing your thesis basically. So it's like explaining to a panel like everything you've done so far and proposing a plan for like, what's the rest of the PhD gonna be and how are you gonna sell this as a full complete work. Um, So I kind of had to scramble to get all of my works together in order to try to make a coherent story uh which is is another challenge in itself because the phd is kind of like a branching tree and you don't you kind of have to figure out how all the branches are related uh, and you can do it's it's actually interesting because there's usually more than one way to outline and you have to kind of pick which story you're going to go with so the good news is that my panel was successful and i'm ready to move on to the next stage so really just closing out the last few projects i have and hopefully finishing up the phd
0: That's cool. And how did you you decide what you were going to uh, study?
1: Yeah, so I I think it's also quite common in the PhD that you kind of just start out doing, you know, whatever you're most interested in at the beginning, but it's really difficult to know, like three, four years in the future. When you look back, like, how are those things going to actually connect? Like, it's very rare that you like have that vision of the full structure at the beginning. You usually just have some little piece of it and you kind of follow that and see where it goes. So. For me, I think what I've kind of ended up framing it as is kind of two, at least two main kind of aspects of the PhD, which is about one designing audio effects using neural networks and machine learning, but also this other side of it of controlling audio effects with machine learning. So kind of one is like in the controlling case, you've been given audio effects already or VSTs or any type of device, and you want to use machine learning to like intelligently control that. So you're only like predicting parameters or making actions and stuff like that uh, with DSP. And so that can do, that has interesting questions and we had to go really far into the research to like learn how to facilitate that in machine learning. And then, yeah, the other side of like creating could be like, neural audio effects, you know, virtual analog audio it could be new types of ways to process audio, audio effect removal, for example, we just had to work about that. So it's kind of those two different branches is how I framed uh, a lot of my work.
2: Yeah, I can totally relate, uh, Christian to, to, to that. I haven't, you know, been on the, the tail end of my uh, PhD for a while, and I like just been working on the, the thesis, I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, is what you just just said like trying to frame frame it in the way that you want uh from like a, a huge tree of like possibilities um you know like you said it kind of starts as a seed and then kind of grows and ha- goes in multiple directions and it's about like at the end it's like almost like trying to rein all that in and then trying to construct a narrative like a cohesive narrative like across the whole body of research um which is a challenge um I mean, I, I definitely found it challenging myself, like, um, you know, a lot of having to rewrite parts of, uh, I don't know how you approach your, your um, uh, the, the written parts of your PhD, uh, Christian, but like it's, I've sort of been doing bits along the way. But then just the thread of the research ends up changing, like, you know, as you go along and you have to kind of like rewrite parts and like, you know, things become more mature or some things go out of date, maybe in the literature and you have to kind of revisit that as well um it's a definitely a, quite a quite a challenge this that last hurdle of like finalizing the thesis I think is yeah it's a tough but rewarding I'm sure
1: definitely
0: so is it more self-guided uh so where does your is it your supervisor uh project supervisor is that is that what the technical name is um yeah advisor
1: yeah advisor yeah
0: yeah advisor so is it more of a self-guided type of uh, type of journey? And where does your advisor come in and help you and, um, and kind of tack along? How, what's that relationship like?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it depends a lot on kind of the dynamic between the PhD and the advisor as well. So I've heard like a lot of different uh, variations of that. Um, you know, I think for people in our group, we tend to be like, I think at C4DM Center for Digital Music at Queen Mary in general, people are relatively autonomous in their projects. So we often kind of say like a PhD is actually kind of like running your own startup in some sense, because you're fully in control. Like you're kind of fully responsible for like what you're gonna do. You have to come up with the project proposal. You have to convince everyone else to, you know, get on board with that. And then you need to be the one that kind of delivers the results and keeps pushing it forward. No one is gonna tell you like, you should research that or go follow this. They might give you ideas or help you brainstorm or like narrow down the topics, but a lot of it really requires on you being very proactive and kind of setting out, taking a stance on like, what do you think is interesting? Where should this go? And I think that's obviously really challenging, uh, but it's also super rewarding because you kind of get full ownership over your direction of the project and the path that it takes. I was going to
0: segue a little bit on that for a second, uh, because you've done quite a few internships. Uh, so if I remember correctly, you've done internships at Adobe, uh, Meta, Tape It, right? And mm-hmm. and I think a few others, right? Uh, so I was curious, because people always ask that ask us this in the community about internships, how they work, uh, you you obviously got a successful formula with with uh, being able to obtain them. So have these been facilitated through the university or has, has this been done independently by you? And what is your strategy for doing that? How do you actually uh, handle that?
1: Mm-hmm yeah so in general the university doesn't directly facilitate that so they're not going to like come to you and be like here's a bunch of internships to do so it's still really much on the student to figure out what are the opportunities that make sense and to go through that process of uh you know interviewing and all of that um so yeah a lot of that is was like just my interest in trying to have impact in product or in industry somewhere with the research because for people that work in kind of this similar area of audio effects or intelligent music production and things like that, um, you know, our research is relatively applied. I would say, right? So, like the the ultimate goal of any of our research is generally not theoretical results, but actually like proposing a system that actually would eventually work in the real world and impact users. So, as a singular PhD student, you can do things like open source your code on GitHub, which is great, and I'd recommend everyone to do that. But I also found like throughout, you know early on in my career that like it's very difficult to be both the researcher dsp developer c plus developer marketing ui design like all of that yourself right so i found that like it was just too difficult to do all of that and really have big impact like get your product in front of a lot of people so internships i think are you know one benefit of them is like they do give you a way to you know contribute and focus on the research but do it in a place in which other people will be there to support and bring that thing into the real world um, if you can deliver on the research side of it.
0: What's the application like? Did you always go the official route, just go to the jobs page, submit your CV there and just cross your fingers and
1: hope? At at the beginning, yes. Um, So I started there for sure. And like there were a few years like I I think the year that I remember that was the most intense was probably like maybe the year I was doing my master's thesis. Uh, I was looking for internship and I think I applied to like upwards of 60 different internships for that particular summer. And I only got one offer out of all of those um, and one, yeah, one offer that, that was good. So I took and that was at Bose uh, Research. So I I took that, but yeah, I was working like really hard, just basically cold applying to all these places because it was still very early in my research career. So I didn't have like a lot of connections yet, but based on that, you know, I was able to um, get some experience, just do something, even if it wasn't exactly what I was interested in, you know, I was really just saying, okay, where can I do audio DSP machine learning and anything related to that I will work on, you know, if it's related to research, basically. And so, yeah, I just kind of followed that and was able to get some experience. But as I've kind of gone on in my career and like had more opportunities to do internships and put my work out there, then for sure the opportunities flipped the other way and people were asking me to come work with them and stuff like that. And definitely my recommendation is like put your work out there, get some level of recognition or, you know, do contribute to the open source community, things like that uh and pick a project to work on that not many other people have worked on yet so you kind of stand out and people will start coming to you because they're like oh this is the person that knows how to do xyz thing and we're interested in doing that here so we want to hire them to to do an internship and that's kind of what happened to me uh in a few cases And, and obviously having having a foot in the door of like knowing someone at a company is is in my opinion like really what you should be aiming to do because that's how you really get through um, a lot of these processes otherwise it's like totally random and just people filtering through resumes like the people probably are aware of but yeah hmm.
0: yeah interesting do you remember specifically what it was about your application that stood out the bose
1: um, I, I was, I've been told by like a few people that I were interned with early on that, like, basically my website was the major thing that convinced them to take a chance on working with me because I document, I had just done a bunch of projects of just things I was interested in. It wasn't even anything necessarily particularly special, but just like putting a lot of effort into like documenting everything, making it look good, open sourcing code, and just making it look like you're doing something. Um, Yeah, and obviously, you can very easily make a free website, you know, hosted on any of these platforms or GitHub uh, pages and stuff like that. So, I'm 100%, I believe that anyone working in software or research should have a website, in my opinion. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. So, the work that you were doing inside these internships, how does that work in terms of your intersection between you're still a student? uh, I imagine that you're working that internship to gain experience, but also to try to leverage some of that back into your academic studies. But I would imagine that the company wants to make a product. They don't, they may not necessarily want you to talk about the things that they're working on that they haven't revealed yet. So how does that work?
1: Yeah, I think there's a a few things to to mention there. I mean, one is from a perspective of a PhD student, I think alignment between the topic of the research and the your PhD topic is really important. So you can always do, some, and some people do it, like they just go work on a totally different topic in an internship just to maybe like clear their head or do get away from their PhD work, which is can be good in some cases. But I think the real synergy happens when you kind of like can find a company that is interested in the same topic as your PhD research, because then you'll be advancing your own you know thesis while doing work at the company um, there obviously is the bureaucracy of like okay working out the IP figuring out between the university between you between the company I mean and different universities have different processes for for doing that but I would say it's definitely worth the effort to go through that process and figure it out um, for example like the case with tape it like we had to work six months to a year before the work could actually begin just to negotiate you know the IP and the contract and things like that between all the parties so it can be difficult, but if you are invested in it and the company's invested in working with you, um, there's definitely a feasible way to make it happen. And the great thing there is, too, that you can also negotiate it so that, for example, there is the means to publish, for example, because we're going to be publishing uh, our paper at AES about the research that I did there. So even though you know it's going towards you a know, commercial uh, application, we're able to contribute back knowledge to the general research community in an open way, um, which I think is really important for, you know, consideration for PhD students also.
2: Amazing. Yeah. And I think, um, I think also, like, we've started to see quite a lot of that happening with other companies as well, even like isotopes, I think, uh, recently, had published quite a a few papers uh, at AES, and I can't remember the other conference, Um, but, um, yeah, like, yeah, was it DAFX maybe? Yeah. Mm um they published some papers there um whilst also integrating like that work into uh, their commercial plugins um which is yeah it's interesting and it's great to see like more and more people are kind of finding like you said christian that like um kind of balance or finding that way to kind of still contribute you know research to the community and to the open source community and you know to academia in a way but also you know it was contribute um, you know in industry and to, to like uh, these sort of commercial projects as well
0: yeah and that seems to have been a switch in uh in the industry as a whole right that seems like i remember when i went to goldsmiths university for my bachelor's that there was a very big divergence in terms of the things that we were studying which were actually some of the things which are actually some of the things that are coming out now and the things that were in the industry and it was kind of known that the industry was this slow moving beast that just takes forever to catch on to the things that are ha- happening, in academia. But now, especially with these advancements, it feels like things have really conglomerated. And now we're, uh, now industry is searching to be on the bleeding edge of what's, what's happening. Um, So tell us a little bit more about this, about this paper that you're uh, publishing in in, uh, partnership with Tape-It.
1: Yeah, definitely. So this was a project that uh, I was working on as part of my Ph.D. And um, so just to say a little bit about Tape-It, it's basically a small startup, you know, uh, musicians, people that want to make tools for musicians, basically. And uh, they already have an existing um, iOS app for songwriting. So like making recordings on your phone, kind of like voice memos, but for songwriters, essentially, and having some AI features and automatic organization and uh, high quality recording and things like that. And one of the things that we were interested in moving into was, yeah, more about enhancing audio quality. And so this particular place we decided to start was with noise reduction, which is kind of like one of the most basic things you might want to do to enhance a recording. And as I'm sure, like a lot of other people have seen, there's been a lot of space kind of in the speech enhancement uh, area, right? So you have like players like Adobe, which has their like enhance uh, for speech, uh, which has a ton of users. Um, There's also Descript and they have their enhancement as well. And what we kind of saw looking at that from our perspective is these those kind of products are super cool, but none of them work for music. Uh, currently right so like if you put in music into a speech enhancement model it'll either do nothing or it will actually sometimes turn your instrument into a voice sound a a thing that sounds like a voice Um, and there were some interesting uh, when when adobe podcast first came out there were some really cool like uh tweets that I saw of people like putting guitar riffs into Adobe podcast and you'll hear it like turn it almost into like a kind of like singing kind of thing because it converts it into a voice because that model has just been trained basically to synthesize voices more or less. Um, But yeah, so we were kind of saying from the music perspective, how could we build something that would just try to elevate the quality a little bit of these recordings and what we decided to do there was also take into account a few other considerations like one we wanted it to be very efficient so we could like run it on device right so we could have it like on an iphone and actually denoise locally for example Um, or potentially in the future work in a daw and something like that Um, which these other existing big models are like really not good at, they need a big GPU, you need a server farm and everything to run them. Uh, So that was one one consideration. And the other one I think that was most important to me was about the artifacts. Because even these very powerful deep learning models that can kind of seem to extract uh, speech from super noisy uh, conditions in a really impressive way, they would always add artifacts even to recordings that have just like a little bit of noise in them. and. We were kind of targeting you know musicians or audio producers that are like super focused on quality right like they care so much about the details of the sound they want high sample rates they want you know minimal artifacts like all of these like classic things that an audio engineer is thinking about like myself included um, and when you look at these other like speech enhancement models they're focused just very much on a different application of like speech where it's like still like lower sampling rates and it's just speech so we were saying okay how could we build a system that seems to solve all of these like impossible problems right and how this ends up being tied back to my phd research is we were then thinking well there are already some really powerful tools for audio enhancement like for example something like isotope rx has a lot of like recovery tools like their spectral recovery and spectral noise and stuff like that that are all based on traditional dsp and you know today there are like thousands of audio engineers that are using that kind of software to enhance you know, audio that's going into like a professional context, right? Um, And so we were saying that's really cool, but you need to be an expert to use those tools to like get a good result, right? You can't just have anybody automatically improve the recording. So we said on this kind of application that I was saying before, like machine learning models, but ones that can control DSP, how could we enable that? And so the whole idea behind our project is to design and have some DSP based, you know, signal uh, noise reduction tools and then train a machine learning model uh, in a very specialized way to learn to control those to denoise or enhance those recordings. Um, and in our paper, we explain kind of all the details of how we made that happen. But while it kind of seems at the beginning very simple, there t- there turns out to be a ton of complications in like how you actually connect DSP to machine learning models, because the, the thing is that it's actually already much easier just to build a giant neural network and train it to do whatever you want because we have like tooling for that. But when it comes to like methods and techniques for integrating the DSP, there, there are some out there, but there's like a lot less clarity on like how to do it. So our, our paper kind of proposes one way to do it and shows how we can get it to work really well um, on this kind of noise reduction case. And I think one of the coolest results is that while we, we compare against some of these big deep learning models to do noise reduction for music, we find that we often perform equally well and in some cases even outperform them when they're kind of these tricky scenarios so for for example like we have like one jazz ensemble that's playing and there's this like classic problem of like the brushes on the uh, drum, but also some noise because it's an older recording. So can you remove the noise without disturbing this like very sensitive, like the brushes on the snare drum and our recording, our, our method does quite a bit better on that than the deep learning methods because the deep learning method tries to do too much and actually kind of harm the audio. So yeah, that's kind of our main idea with this. And it's currently available now um, for anyone to try out. So we're kind of putting it out there just for anyone to try and you can try it at tape.it slash denoiser um and yeah it's we're really interested in feedback on that and to see like how far we can push this like merging of dsp and and machine learning
2: i was gonna just like say there like uh the the kind of the scenario where you mentioned about uh, the adobe uh sort of denoising where it kind of creates these like interesting effects if you don't use speech mm-hmm. um you know that's it's super cool to me because I'm, I'm always like interested in like the mis the misuse of the technologies as well and like what that can create uh, just by like happy accident. Um, but I'm, I'm curious like whether has there been any like kind of edge cases or like anything with with your particular solution that you've it's uh, kind of I don't know created something unexpected like that you've noticed. So is there any? I know this is like sort of picking at like you know where there might be error in the, your system, but like is there has there been anything that's like emerged that You went, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. It doesn't work maybe so great on that material, or or, or would you say it's been pretty universal? Well,
1: yeah, I mean it, we're definitely haven't fully solved everything to do with uh, noise reduction. That's for sure. Um, I think the biggest caveat to mention with our system is that you know unlike these big deep learning models for for speech enhancement, we're not trying to you know if you if you're going to the middle of times square and making a recording of your acoustic guitar you know we're not trying to enhance that and make it sound as if as if you're in a studio because that in some sense really isn't even noise reduction in my opinion it's more like a resynthesis or a reimagining of something that wasn't even recorded fully because as the kind of, the one way to look at it is that as a recording becomes more and more degraded there's like a loss of information of the original source that you want because it's getting covered by noise or other interfering sources. So in order to kind of denoise or enhance those recordings, you actually have to invent uh, some information that wasn't there in the original recording at some after some threshold. And what, I think that's definitely an area for future research, and there has some, been some work on that. Um, of like if you have these super distorted recordings can you make them sound better Um, but we weren't really interested in that we were saying like i already have a good sounding recording it just has a little bit of noise in there and that's actually a really common use case for anyone that's like set up a condenser mic just in their room and started recording they'd notice like all of this just like ambient noise that they're capturing and we wanted to tackle that because we knew that we could decrease that noise without harming the original signal in a way so so basically you know for those types of cases where you have a good recording it just has some noise i think we really provide a good uh, uh solution to that but yeah we definitely if you want to put in like some super distorted recording or like you recorded a concert from the back of the hall or something like that and you want it to sound like hi-fi it's you know we're not going to solve
2: that problem right now for sure okay. so would you say your solution is more kind of that subtractive approach then Like, it's not do- there's not doing any sort of additive kind of reimagining of the sounds at, at all, would you say? Exactly, yeah. There's, yeah.
1: So it's purely kind of a filtering based approach. And we use some gates and filters that are kind of based on traditional DSP. The difference mm-hmm. is that just that we use a neural network to dynamically control those settings, actually in a way that would be probably more advanced than a human user could do it themselves potentially.
2: Wow. Oh, yeah, that's, that's super cool. Um, yeah, because I know that, like you mentioning, there's a few companies that have kind of been uh creating some software that can go from like a kind of um you know you've recorded something through your phone kind of microphone and then it's like taking it to like a really high uh you know professional grade like condenser mic kind of sound so there obviously is a use case as well for that kind of yeah reimagining the sound and making that sort of um yeah pro quality or or something like that but yeah it's also interesting like i think these some of these models that do reimagine the sound you know it's like you know at that point, you know, at what point does it perceptually become something different? You know, like like, like it becomes a different, um, like it's not your sound anymore; it's something else. I think that's also quite an interesting yeah. uh, thing to think about. But um, but that's no, it sounds it sounds really cool. And uh, you said it's available at yeah tape uh, yeah. tape it
1: dot slash denoiser. Yeah. yeah, it's nice. freely available. You can just literally like drag and drop any audio file into it and it will give it, wait a few seconds and it'll denoise it. Um, we also, the other cool aspect of our algorithm is it has some level of controllability. So we kind of have this like strength slider and you can move that back and forth in the UI and it will actually change uh, what the denoiser is doing. It's not a wet dry mix, it's actually a bit more complicated than that. So the system actually hmm. has the ability to kind of do be more or less aggressive, which we find is really useful too because sometimes people are like, I want it to sound super dry, or I want it to leave
2: some of the kind of natural ambience in there. Yeah, and and that that method that you just, you just highlighted is that based on like con- conditioning, like model conditioning for for that parameter, or
1: it's actually because since underlying all of the processing that's being done of the audio is happening by DSP, we mm-hmm. kind of can tweak those parameters after the model predicts ah, makes its prediction. So we can kind of that's the really cool thing about our approach is that we kind of. Can put guardrails also on the system, so we can tell it, for example, don't act too aggressively in these cases by setting different parameters and stuff like that. So right. the so the neural network will never be able to like have full reign of the audio, which is which is like it's what makes them very powerful for these other like reimagining use cases, but it's also what leads them to add artifacts or like you get that effect of like when someone's in like a big hall and you enhance their voice, uh, it will remove the reverb, but you hear it like kind of chopping off the end just very aggressively. Um, which you can hear a lot of the time. So we can actually tune our system so it won't do that kind of thing.
2: Right. Super cool.
1: So
0: for a novice like myself, you were saying that you were using a neural network rather than deep learning. Uh, As a person who studied a little bit of neural networks, uh, those two terms have been kind of maybe synonymous to me, but it sounds like there's a difference uh, to you. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between those? And also... A little bit about the technique that you use to actually train the model, if you if you can.
1: Yeah, so I think on the first part, we 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 are using deep learning um, to do this. The difference is where we use deep learning. So the existing approaches for doing these spe- these big speech enhancement models, um, they use deep learning not only to analyze the recording but also to process it. Right, so they actually like are processing the audio sample by sample with a giant neural network that's predicting the clean speech. Um, whereas the difference with our approach is we use a deep learning system only to analyze the audio, and then we use that analysis to predict use a neural network that intelligently predicts parameters for a fully standalone DSP-based noise reduction system um, that we built. So what that means is that when we run our algorithm, there's actually these kind of like two parallel pathways, like the analysis and the actual like processing pathway. And we can operate them independently, or we can, like I was saying before, kind of get into the middle between the neural network and the other device and make any kind of manipulations or put guardrails um, and things like that. And that not only does it help us with kind of reducing artifacts, but it also helps us with efficiency because we can implement that DSP and like super optimized C++ code that can run in real time. And it's fully independent and in it's like way that it runs from the neural network. So for example, if we wanted to run this thing in real time, we wouldn't have to run the neural network like on the audio thread, for example, right? Because we could actually run it on a separate thread and it could be predicting parameters for the, this DSP thing and the DSP is running on its audio thread as it normally would. And it could actually be somewhat asynchronous potentially um, as well. So that's kind of the other big difference of our approach of how we're using deep learning here.
0: And. What about the training itself? What was the process for that?
1: Yeah, so to, I won't, I don't want to get into too much detail, not because I can't share, but just because it gets very technical. And I would definitely recommend anyone to check out our paper. Um, we can share a link uh, to it as well. It's on archive um, if, you, if you're really interested in the details. But to give you kind of a starting point in a high level way to think about it, the approach that we focus on uh, uses something called differentiable signal processing. And actually my PhD research has focused a lot on trying to understand uh, the different techniques and develop methods for this. And the idea here, right, when you train a neural network is you use something called backpropagation to train the system, right? So you have a neural network, it has a bunch of weights, and you need to optimize those weights. So you set up some training where you make a prediction, you compute the error, and that error gives you a way to compute a gradient, which is a way to tell you how to update the weights. And to do that, you kind of use this basic idea from calculus of gradients, differentiability, and things like that. So every operation inside this kind of computation graph needs to be differentiable in order to facilitate this training that goes from like the last layer all the way up the back propagation. So when it comes to controlling audio effects or DSP in general, we want to actually train with the DSP in the loop so that we basically predict some parameters, run the DSP with those parameters with some audio that goes through it, then we get some audio out and we want to compare that audio out to the target. So like if it's if it's noise reduction, we want to have a clean audio and then the predicted audio from the system and compare them and use that to train the neural network to predict better parameters. But this requires that we have to back propagate through this DSP. And that's where the differentiable signal processing comes in, which is all about proposing methods to make DSP differentiable or approximately differentiable or, approxi- yeah, or even approximate the gradients if whether they exist or not. So in this particular approach, we use this kind of gradient approximation approach, but we do this kind of special two-stage training in order to make it work. And I can't get into more details just because it will get too technical, but I uh, definitely encourage people to check out this differentiable signal processing idea. And there's a number of papers out there if you just search for that.
0: Amazing. So that's that's really nice that it uh, it focuses on efficiency in the system where you can use it in real time. That's a that's definitely something that's been a big problem space industry-wide being able to use these uh, models and using AI in general and, uh, in real time. Uh, recently there's been the lander mastering plugin that's come out, uh, which is very interesting. Another real time system that allows, uh, I don't really know how it, how it works, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, um, how you think it may work and, um, if it uses a, a, similar situ- uh, a similar system or something completely different, and how they were able to get uh, machine learning and neural networks
1: into a plugin. Yeah, do you want to take that first, Andrew? Maybe you have some thoughts. Yeah,
2: I mean, I guess um, I probably. It's obviously hard to kind of to, to know exactly how they're maybe implementing that um, as you know their own proprietary kind of solution, but you know from the surface it, it, it does resemble like something similar to what uh you know Christian's been talking about and been been exploring. So probably sort of um uh automated mixing um sort of a sort of idea of um having DSP blocks uh as part of like the mastering chain um and then essentially like training a neural network deep learning algorithm to a uh, deep learning model to um essentially uh, fine tune these uh, high level parameters of the DSP, uh, to sort of, um, I guess match some sort of uh, result. Um, uh, so I mean, I guess like ha- having not, I've not actually, you know, experimented with the plugin, um, uh, sort of hands on, but like, uh, I guess from the surface and from kind of the tri- you know the 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 material that's been uh released so far, kind of. Looks like it could possibly be that. But then there's also the, the option that maybe it's a full uh, kind of end to end approach as well, where they've conditioned uh, and this sort of deep learning model to, um, I guess, improve the sounds and sort of mastering style based on um, high level parameters that have kind of been exposed um, to the user. I mean, at the same time, there are quite a lot of parameters. So maybe that's maybe not the case. I think. Uh, uh, probably it's more likely that it's it's um, trained on parameters of DSP, and that's why it's so efficient as well. I think as uh, we touched on earlier, uh, one of the problems with uh, working with these uh, end-to-end deep learning uh, algorithms is that a lot of the times and it's hard to get them to perform in real time. Whereas, uh, we have some fantastic solutions already in the in the 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 land of DSP that you know are optimized for for real time uh, applications. Uh, so, and then and, you know, there's also that um, you know, this kind of whole thing about, I think you know, Christian touched on it, like running uh processing in like a real time environment as well, and I think uh, you know, deep learning algorithms uh, and AI models have some uh, challenges when trying to deploy them in a real time environment uh, versus like uh, uh DSP um just not just because of the computation but just how they adapt uh to different uh conditions that the daw may set like for example uh some models are trained at certain sample rates and like um so they perform at that sample rate and you know if, if the if the host application that's in charge of the real-time environments changing uh sample rate or buf- even buffer size as well some of these models work on certain um sizes of dimensions to the inputs and you know like uh if, if these are dynamically set in uh, a DAW, then that may not align well with some of these sort of end-to-end uh, deep learning models. Um, re- might require some, yeah, different resampling techniques or uh, things like that on top of the model for it to, to work. Um, and, uh, you know, the stuff that, for example, we do at Newtone with the, the Newtone uh, plugin uh, is kind of that kind of approach. So we have like an a- NSEK um, that's available publicly available. That allows you to kind of wrap these deep learning models um, with, um, essentially, like resampling layers and like queuing uh, layers that you don't really need to think about because we've kind of imp- implemented that for you. Um, that allows to kind of cater for some of these scenarios where you want a model to adapt to different sample sample rates or different uh, buffer sizes and things. But then you know that also has. Some challenges as well because you know when you resample you can introduce like aliasing and artifacts like christian was uh, talking about earlier um and uh, that can also yeah have challenges so i think um the technique that may be applied with lander and you know that um christian's also exp- exploring where you're uh, actually learning parameters of dsp uh, you know as a, as a really nice solution i think to to handling some of these problems and having really efficient performing um, algorithms. Um, So, yeah, that from, you know, kind of slight tangent there, but like um, to bring it back, like that's kind of maybe my guess that what's going on with the the new Lander plugin. Uh, I don't know, uh, Christian, if you have uh, any more insight or knowledge on how that might be working, but that's just my kind of high level uh, view on it.
1: Yeah, I I definitely agree with a lot of those points. Yeah, and I I don't know myself exactly what they're doing. But I think we can guess quite a bit, just based on kind of how, how it seems to be working from the outside. Um, I think one really, uh, like important question or thing that we'd ask first is like, okay, so Lander has already had a very successful existing web based AI mastering service. So I think The first thing could be is you could ask is like, okay, is all of the processing and like AI stuff happening solely within the plugin or is there actually some communication, for example, to the web, like do they actually go talk to a server send your song up there and then send parameters back to the DAW, for example. Um, And I don't know that um, for sure yet, but I'm sure you can test it by uh, turning your Wi Fi off when you're running the plugin and see if it still works. Uh, But that can be tricky too now, because right, there are some plugins that even require you to be connected to Wi-Fi for uh, authorization and things like that. So um, I think moving forward, this is like an interesting question for plugin developers as well as for users about how much tied to the web are their plugins, right? Um, Because traditionally, you could be like on your laptop on an airplane without Wi-Fi and still be using all your plugins. Uh, But maybe that is changing if more plugins go cloud hybrid kind of cloud-based thing but i think my guess is actually that they don't send to the server but i haven't tested that myself um but that's really interesting because then it means that they've been able to like distill their intelligence or their logic you know to actually run with inside the plugin and if i had to guess i think the, it, they, they probably are using some sort of similar approach to this kind of do some analysis with neural networks and then predict parameters but it's definitely unclear like exactly what kind of stuff they do and they haven't you know publicly really spoken about any of that and the only link that we have is kind of like research papers that came from the original start of lander that was at Queen Mary 10 15 years ago um, so we have some of those papers and we can kind of go based on that but we don't know anything you know beyond that as far as what they've been doing lately um, i think kind of if i can say like traditionally what people have thought the lander approach, kind of how it works is it's more of this kind of like expert system uh, kind of approach or like traditional logic AI where like you can do some high level analysis, like extract uh, the spectrum of the signal and like look at the dynamics and like look at some different statistics basically of your mix. And then you can kind of create some reference templates. So you say like, Oh, if this song is a jazz song, Statistics for the masters of that kind of tend to look like this. So, then what we're going to do is use that information to like configure an EQ and configure some dynamics processing so that we can make your mix look like it has statistics that are closer to the reference. And I think, even in this new plugin, like a lot of the other tools, uh, mastering tools that are out there, they kind of give you this like three options like a, I don't know, a warm classic or punchy traditional or something, you know, these different kinds of like words to describe like maybe three different options. And those are all like matching to different statistics profiles, basically. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of how I'm guessing that these kind of systems are working. But I what I think what I'm most interested in for the future, you know, looking at these kinds of platforms is I still believe that there is significant room for innovation in and in improvement in the algorithms. Because I think this like paradigm of combining the neural networks with the DSP I mean, I, I fully believe in that as a, as a path forward um, for solving these problems. And so far, I think like the level of intelligence that we're putting into the plugins, yeah, hasn't reached its full potential because this kind of like more basic, like matching the statistics uh, is not nearly as powerful as like a neural network that can kind of configure any effects and like make decisions based on analyzing, you know, large catalogs of music, for example. I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, but you know who knows exactly what Lander has has put into their product. But I, I do believe that that kind of general paradigm, where we're able to separate like the DSP and the intelligence, and like have them interact, is like super important for having really high quality like audio products.
2: Yeah, and another thing that you know related to that that we're seeing more and more of, I think, is um, you know the emergence of all these sort of physical models uh, as well. And I think um, the interesting thing about a lot of these physical models that um, I think they have the complication that a lot of them have tons of uh, parameters that you need to tweak, you know, to get a, a certain sound or behavior. And a lot of these physical models can be really accurate, uh, you know, when you look at the the, the physics, the science, uh, and the mathematics. You know, they are, um, but ch- actually trying to tune all the different parameters that might be, um, you know, they are as part of that algorithm to to do the physical model. Like to actually tune that by hand is like, you know sometimes near enough impossible uh, to achieve a desired effect so i can see also like maybe a similar application where you're applying some of these neural networks deep learning algorithms to the tuning of parameters for uh, these physical models as well uh, which i think is another interesting application uh, for it Um, i think we've done well uh, as a society to like you know Create these uh, fantastic um, algorithms, DSP algorithms, to do to achieve achieve these d- different effects and um, and outcomes. And there's been a lot of like historic uh, research and you know modeling some uh, quite advanced non-linear systems. Um, you know, like the voice, for example, uh, and various other things, uh, plate reverbs, like all sorts of things that. And, you know we've got these quite advanced physical models of, but like actually trying to distill those into high level, like like few high level parameters that um you know are easy for a user to to navigate is difficult and uh and also to to achieve like a desired quality and result. Like sometimes if you don't have these parameters set in the correct way, like the the actual behavior isn't isn't ideal. So like applying neural networks to to sort of understand and extract um the best tuning of these parameters um i think is a really interesting application as well and i think and i hope to see more and more of that coming out in the near future as well so like dsp being tuned by neural networks and physical models being tuned by your uh, neural networks as well um i've yet to see maybe one an example like the physical modeling i don't know christian if you're aware of of any but uh yeah,
1: so definitely, there's some work even in our research group. Um, there's David Sudholt is one PhD student in our lab and his kind of PhD topic is machine learning for physical models. Um, and he has some a recent paper that he presented at DAFX, I believe, um, on that exact topic of controlling physical models uh, with a neural network. So yeah, definitely check that Amazing. area out of research. I think it's, it's, as you were saying, there's not a lot of work there. Um, but I'm definitely foreseeing that also growing. And it's definitely a super clear application like a great marriage of those two technologies i think
0: does that move does that mean that we're that you see a trend that's moving towards where the neural network is a control layer and that we as the user are describing how we want it to sound so we say to a physical model a physical model algorithm i want it to sound like christian's voice and that we give it uh we give it some model data and that it and that it automatically tweaks the parameters for us is that how that interaction would work
1: yeah i I think so i i think i guess the other thing that i would want to make clear too about this is i i don't think it's a mutually exclusive research direction either so in other words to make that clear it means that i think there is a role for like large end-to-end neural network models that don't use any dsp but i also think there's a role for using machine learning models to control existing DSP or physical models. Um, It's not like a one or the other kind of thing. It's one where we should really have both because there definitely is kind of, I would say the predominant paradigm in audio, neural audio research right now is about these like big giant models that can synthesize any sound by doing any means, like any means you want. Um, And there are definitely applications for that and we should continue that research. But to me, it feels like somewhat unsatisfactory if that was the only branch of the tree of research here because as Andrew said before there's like so much existing powerful DSP technology that like when in the right hands can create amazing results and you know the thing that really motivates me about that is that like every day there are people using those tools to put out amazing content you know whether it's music but it could also be for film production video games, like all of those tools are being used by professionals today to, to make real things that are impacting people. Mm-hmm. So it kind of seems obvious to me that like, to really get the benefit of AI that's we're seeing in other domains, like in language, like chat GPT and derivatives, to really make that kind of impact that that's having happen in audio, we need to integrate machine learning models with these the same tools. Um, and it's just something we should be able to do like You know with the right research and with the right um uh, ability so so i I would say it's not the only paradigm but it's one where i think that paradigm is is lagging behind the other one where people are chasing the like build a giant model that can synthesize anything
2: yeah and i should say like i mean I, i envision like a future where these technologies like coexist i think maybe some people um are you know potentially afraid of a lot of this AI technology like taking over from what we've already used and tools that we already have. Um, but I think like, as Christian said, like I can imagine uh, all these uh, new technologies that are coming out uh, and ones that have, uh, are being sort of um, either powered by deep learning technologies and machine learning, like they should and probably will like coexist um, and just sort of optimize like what we we can uh, currently do and extend and you know augment what we can already do in different ways so um, yeah I think that's a uh, kind of and then uh, something to kind of highlight or stress is that you know a lot, there's this paradigm is like uh, a great paradigm for emphasizing the coexistence of DSP traditional DSP and these like big deep learning uh, algorithms that are kind of coming out as well. Hmm.
0: So it sounds like the idea is more like a shell that lives around existing DSP, existing plugins that we would be able to intelligently be able to describe a sound and then it would be able to take this existing DSP and do something interesting with it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I I want to extend that even further because I mean, I also agree with Andrew, like, yeah, there's going to be use cases for both of these kinds of things. For, for people across the types of users that are out there. Um, I think even the most powerful way to frame it, and this is kind of how I'm thinking about it. I don't think we're anywhere near close to this, but this is like what I would really envision five, 10 years from now, which is what what we're kind of talking about of this like kind of highest level AI abstraction layer that's a controller of things or like a configurer, configurator of, of, in some sense. Um, it can That thing in theory, if smart enough, should be able to configure not just DSP, right? But it could also configure neural networks because we already have a huge set of, you know, audio neural networks that do a bunch of really interesting things. We talked about the speech enhancement models, right? There's also like stem separation models for music, right? There's also um, models that can generate sound. So you could also think of those individual models that are neural networks also kind of as DSP boxes but they just happen to have a neural network inside so you could I kind of imagine this future in which There are DSP boxes where one is just a parametric EQ or a clipper or something like that But alongside it there also could be a stem separator box and then now what my configurator is doing is actually Saying like oh well when the time is right to use an EQ I use an EQ when the time is right to separate stems I use a neural network to do it right that's like the smart way to do it in my opinion like Whereas the other approach would be just like, oh, we just use one giant AI model that can do everything. It relearns and recreates all of DSP and stores it internally in some you know, opaque way that we can't understand. And it takes a bunch of compute to do it. So like, I- I'm less confident of that being like the real solution. And whereas like, the smartest system is the one that uses the simplest tool to get the job done, but it can also not get stuck if there's a hard problem because it's like, oh, I can use this other machine learning model, but only when I need to.
2: Uh, and I think, um, I mean, that, that's obviously what we're seeing. Uh, you know, a lot of audio engineers, master engineers, they they have that that sort of say, right, when they're working with the t- with the tools, they're not going to like have this, and you know, pipeline of audio effects, and just be like, oh well, I don't know, just I'll turn down the distortion like really low, um, because it's not it's it's not needed as much. So it's like you just t- you yank that out. It's like I'm not using distortion for this use case. I don't need that, or you know. Uh, the eq filtering or the compression like whatever like there's obviously um and there's a ton of uh plugins out there that are kind of um and not just plugins you know DOS as well that allow you to chain effects in different ways and decide what effects are actually um appropriate for certain to achieve a desired sound so yeah i think that is definitely a great uh place to be if we could have some uh, neural networks and, and machine learning models that can kind of understand that like when like maybe maybe be part of like a bigger system with like different effects and can actually uh work out when to apply certain effects in certain use cases I think yeah maybe in the next five ten years we'll start to see see that as well um I just want to like also touch on something that's very uh related to this um as well and it's kind of getting a lot of uh, buzz around it right now is the, the new the new uh Sinplant 2 Plugin that came out uh which i think uh, has like actually shown to people like the power of of this technology in a way of like fine tuning um you know synthesizers fine tuning oscillators with just the right parameters to achieve uh some some sort of sound like that based on like a reference sound so you can like throw in like a voice sound or throw in like um you know anything really like a uh, you know sound of a violin or sound of whatever and this algorithm will will um, essentially like uh, tune the parameters of these oscillators to sound like that, and I think that I mean there, there's that and the power of that's enormous. But I think what this opens up to people, to artists, to creatives, as well as you know um, the stuff that you know Christians working on as well, is it allows us as artists to start to like deviate from from that from that uh, result with these high level parameters to achieve something fresh and new as well so you know i think that's the great power of um a lot of the dsp that we work with is that we have this high level control and we can change really um you know these sort of high level characteristics of the sound um and i think the great thing about Simplant 2 for example is the fact that you can say you throw in like a sound of a choir or the sound of um some acoustic instrument and this oscillator like you know tries to best match i know this oscillator this synthesizer tries to best match that sound you can then go into like the dna as it as it's like titles like of of that uh, and start to like tweak and like randomize and like shift and deviate like the parameters to then you know achieve a, a result that's completely fresh um and it could be uh you know based on that initial result so there's like an essence of that that it starts to kind of become dissimilar in some way that's kind of just opens up a friend a fresh like uh you know listening experience I guess which I think is super super exciting as well
0: yeah there are so many things that I love about Simplant too I love that it's it's taking it's taken synthesis and it's just turned it on its head and just approached it from a completely different direction. I love that uh hopefully that doesn't mean that we're going to see a uh, an onslaught of plant-based <laughs> plugins. Uh, another thing that I really love about it is that it's very is that for a person to use it it has an interface that is very simple you just drag and drop, a sound, you hit one button, and now you come out with the permutations of, uh, of of other different sounds. But yet, you also have that expert level control as well that's underneath the hood. And I think the way that they that that they laid it out is really really interesting. Uh, it, it really gives a lot of control. You know, some where somebody could very quickly come up with some interesting textures, something that's completely original. But at the same time, if you're looking for something specific. You can get under the hood and you can really tweak those parameters. I really love it.
2: Yeah, like uh, I mean, there's there's so many like new kind of sonic possibilities, like you know, when you're working with with that um, technology, uh, which is really exciting. And I think, yeah, it's something you touched on there, uh, Josh, with the the fact like how they've communicated that information and that experience as a as a as a user is like I think really fresh and interesting. And I think that. You know, maybe it's beyond the the scope of of this episode, but like an, another thing is like, you know, what does the do these new approaches and technologies uh, sort of open open up to the actual creative the creative um, experience of and, and the interactive experience as a as a producer as a musician working with these tools? Like, how do we best communicate what's going on in the processing and the pro and the processes? And I think, uh, yeah, Simplant2 did a great job in having this sort of, you know, I hope, like you said, there's not going to just be all these plant-based like, <laughs> uh, tools emerging, but, like, that metaphor and, like, the... And then also the idea of, like, the DNA, which allows you to get, go in and have, like, finer control, Um, I think is really a really interesting take on 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 what's going on there. Uh, and, like, this the stemming and branching of, like, these different variations and stuff like that, I think is really interesting. So... I mean, I'm hoping to see like as you know more of these technologies emerge, like really interesting uh, human-computer interactions emerge, uh, which sort sh- sort of shift us away from um, the traditional uh, interactions that we're used to with like uh, you know just just knobs and sliders and things of like uh, simulating kind of physical hardware from the from the past. I think there's definitely a place for all of that, but um, I think yeah, I'm interested to see what other uh, interactions occur as well from, from some of these technologies. So
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think I would pick up on that and saying like my, my feeling recent, more recently, like seeing kind of how fast the research of AI and related to audio is developing. What I, I think it's a great time for people that are designers, uh, and, you know, people that like want to work on UI design and things like that, like, it's a great time to, innovate in that space because there's this new technology layer that's emerging, but it's really unclear what the right way to present that to the user is. Um, you know, like we were kind of saying with implant, like, oh, you want to like have potentially a way to hide all of that uh, complexity, but you also want to be able to dig down when it's appropriate. Um, and I, that's kind of something I've always thought about, you know, in general with this like general paradigm of controlling DSP. Like, you can always have one layer that's like a fully black box abstraction you just put something in and a bunch of things happen behind the scenes you don't see it but you can then dig if it's dsp you can dig down and see that and understand it at a lower level but you could even go as far as to say it's like well how many levels is appropriate right like maybe there's a way to design like easy medium hard level right like of how many parameters i'm exposing it and obviously in plugin design this has been a common paradigm as well because you can some plugins you know do have like a little hidden advanced configuration menu and you can do even more stuff. Um, but I wonder as we, I'm kind of seeing it as that we're moving like a layer up the stack of abstraction when it comes to DSP. So AI lets us like remove even more parameters, but then there's this question of like, can we have meta parameters, right? So like maybe at the bottom most level is DSP parameters. The top most level is just fully automatic AI system, but maybe there's some middle layer where it's like, I can interface with this system with some knob but the knob isn't dsp it's actually another conditioning signal to an ai system and obviously this might sound like really abstract and unclear like what that is and it's because it doesn't really exist yet and someone needs to figure out how to build that and research that so i think i'd love to see more collaboration also like from the hci research space and the ai audio space because there's just so many questions to answer there yeah
0: um, you, you bring up a great point in that the interfaces that we've that we've had in as music producers sound engineers have really hit their threshold in terms of uh in terms of what we can do i mean taking a look at simplant from a more technical user interface uh standpoint i could tell that there's a lot more uh technically a lot of bespoke uh graphics uh and and a lot of uh hand rolling of of using um maybe Vulcan or Metal or uh, maybe OpenGL to actually display the graphics. One thing that's always that's been frustrating to me as of late is that if we look at what we have in the video game world in terms of Unreal Engine and the possibilities there, 3D worlds, you know, just million, you know, thousands of objects interacting with each other in real time versus the limitations that we have in the in the real time audio world. Uh, and and I would love to see some enhancements on that. Like you said, there, there are some really exciting possibilities for uh, UX UI designers to to really go out and start exploring. and I'm hoping that Simplan can serve as a point of inspiration for people to start exploring just beyond oscillators and you know, filter controls. Um, the other thing that I was going to say is that, um, one thing that i thought was far ahead of its time that we had on one of our first audio programmer meetups was uh, this game called dreams uh for the playstation 4 and i always thought that that was going to be uh where i would like the the doll and where i would like music creation to head towards in the future uh if you're not familiar with dreams it's this amazing game, and uh, big shout out to Bogdan Vera, who's the audio developer there, who uh, who actually did a lot of the um, the DSP and a lot of the work. I think is in raw C, not even C And it's this three t- this it's this three D interactive. I don't even know how to describe dreams. It's just this creative workspace where you can create songs, you can create. Um, you, I think you can create loads of things. And uh, I just remember watching the music creation portion of that. You had 3D arpeggiators and you just had these interactive things happening that were just beyond way, way beyond the scope years ahead of anything that we're doing in terms of real time music creation. Now, I would love for things to head in that direction uh, rather than, you know, being stuck with it, it, You know, I, I think there's a world for both of those realities to exist uh but um that's the area that i'm starting to get excited about so when we see SimPlant 2 i'm thinking okay can we have SimPlant 2 but with something that's a little bit that's with something that's 3d that would be pretty interesting uh with abstract parameters and now you start to get into okay well can we make it into I don't know i don't have an idea off the top of my head but something outside of plants you know something that rep something that's representative of the sound but not necessarily technically describing the sound uh that that will the creators will be inter- able to interact with and um, and you know create um uh, things that haven't been seen or created yet the next dubstep maybe
2: <laughs> yeah i'm covering sort of new genres and stuff i think that will be well uh what i hope the technology leads to as well um and i think uh, that yes there's something to be said though about, um like we're talking about these kind of meta parameters like these uh perce- almost like perceptual parameters that um we can navigate as as uh as human beings like you know in our listening experience and i think there's a lot of great uh research uh that's been done Uh, from you know on that side as well like away from the the technical space like on the actual the listening experience like perceptual characteristics and I think uh, you know there's an argument to be to be made about like maybe that is potentially more natural to us as as human beings and how we interact with uh, audio and music and maybe machine learning and and some of these new technologies will allow us to kind of gravitate more towards working through perceptual parameters rather than than these like t- high, uh, these sort of lower level technical parameters, uh, which could be interesting as well. And I think we're starting to see some uh, technologies come out with like parameters like that. Like um, I think it's difficult because uh, there's obviously a level of subjectivity in 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 this area. So it's like a kind of um, you have to be co- uh, kind of considerate of of that side of it. Um, but I think there's also a lot of space to kind of I don't know potentially refine. Uh, the description of certain sounds perceptually, and uh, maybe that's the direction that we end up going when it comes to like parameter manipulation.
0: Absolutely. Great. Feels like a good time for us to wrap up now. Um, Yes, thank you. uh, Thank you, Christian, Andrew, uh, for your time. This is awesome. Once again, if you want to join the community, get in touch with, uh, and any of us uh, you can get you can do so on the uh, audio programmer uh, community on Discord you can join uh, the audioprogrammer.com forward slash community and we'll be back uh, next month for episode three so be sure to join us uh, subscribe uh, via the platform that you're listening on and we hope to see you next time
2: Thanks everyone thanks